0: So imagine this scenario with me. Uh, You have a good friend who calls you up or he stops by and says, we need to talk. There's something I need to tell you. I am gay. Ever since I can remember, I've been attracted to other guys. And for a long time, I prayed that God would take these feelings away from me. But he didn't. So then I said, okay, I'm just going to have to live with this. And I've been living with this for many years. But it's been so hard. And I'm here to talk to you because last week I met another guy and I fell in love with him. And now I'm really confused because I love Jesus and I know the Bible calls homosexuality a sin, but the Connection I have with this man feels so real, it's almost like an answer to prayer. So I need to know what you think. Is it okay for me to start dating this guy, or does God want me to just deny myself and continue to be lonely? What would you be thinking as your friend shared that? I can imagine I would have thoughts like... Well, what exactly does the Bible say about homosexuality? Um, Or how can it be a sin if my friend has felt this way as long as he can remember? Did God make a mistake? Or who am I to give him advice? I have not been sexually pure. Wouldn't I be a hypocrite if I tell him not to do what makes him happy? Now, some of you don't need to really imagine this scenario because it's happened to you. You had conversations like this. Or maybe the person isn't asking for your advice but is saying, this is who I am. Will you still be my friend? Um, but I framed this story in the way I did because it illustrates the choice that Christians are confronted with today. Um, As same-sex relationships become broadly um, affirmed in our culture, um, individual Christians and families and whole churches and whole denominations are kind of at this crossroads, like, what do we do? What's the right answer? And unfortunately, sometimes it feels like for Jesus following Bible-believing Christians, we have two bad choices. So imagine that scenario. Door number one says, unconditionally affirm, love, accept. That's like the church with the pride flag. And there, are, there is some truth in that. God accepts people. God loves people. But the problem is, in order to unconditionally do that, we have to throw out or radically reinterpret a lot of what the Bible says about human sexuality. And that seems like a bad choice. Door number two is reject, um, judge, say this is bad and you're bad and you need to change in order for us to accept you. And that's a really bad choice too because that's unbiblical. You see how it feels like we're forced into this binary uh, uh, process. And what I want to share with you today is that there is a third way I believe the way of Jesus is a third way, a different way than those two bad choices. And I want to tell you about what it is. I think it's actually a much harder way than those, either of those two choices because those are at least pretty clear cut and easy to understand and black and white. And people like things to be black and white, but the way of Jesus is different. It's true, it's life-giving, but it's also complex <laughs> and kind of messy sometimes. But I want to, to show you what this is. And in order to present this third way, uh, through the winter and spring, I'm going to take basically one Sunday a month to, to preach about these issues. A sermon series called God, The Gospel and Sexuality. And these are the kinds of questions we'll be tackling together as we look in the word what is God's design for sexuality and marriage Uh, because you realize we have to zoom out and see the big picture we're not just talking about one um, isolated issue or uh, uh, part of the Bible second what does God's word say about same-sex relationships and what have some people tried to say to reinterpret what the Bible says And three, how does the gospel of Jesus offer good news to everyone, uh, male, female, married, single, gay, straight? The the gospel is good news for all of us, not just some of us. So here is what this sermon series will not be as a heads up. I will not be pushing the panic button about how bad the world is um, and that traditional values are under attack. That's not what I'm here to do. I won't be pointing a finger at LGBTQ people and saying those people are a problem and, and we should be um, very uh, whatever, we should reject them. Nor will I be giving you ammunition for culture war issues like what curriculum should be taught in school or what bathrooms should certain people use. It's not that Christians shouldn't think about these things and be ready to engage in culture, but my concern as a pastor is to just help you follow Jesus, starting in your life and then in your family and in, in your circles. Okay? And one more caveat. There will be so many questions that get kicked up as, we, as I preach on these issues I just won't have time to say everything in these sermons. So I invite you for feedback. I invite you for further discussion and um, questions and conversation. Okay, so as we get started today, this is just kind of an overview sermon. I want to present three core values that I hope will guide us as we take this third way of Jesus. These are three Christian virtues that the gospel gives us in order to to wade into these waters. Those things are humility, clarity, and courage. Humility, clarity, and courage. So let's go through those one at a time. Number one, humility. You might remember the parable that Jesus told called the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let me read to you from Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Sometimes Christians are a lot like that Pharisee in the parable, except instead of the tax collector, it's a gay person. Thank you, Lord, that I am not like that person. Uh thank you that I have the correct theology and that, that, that I am sexually pure. Um, we are confident of our own righteousness. We thank God that we're not like those people, right? Whoever those people are. But if we believe the gospel, that we are sinners for whom Christ died, we will be okay admitting that we are Inclu- everything about us, including our sexuality, is affected by sin. Maybe you don't struggle with homosexual lust or behavior, or maybe you do. I'm sure some people in our church do. But maybe you don't. Maybe your issue is committing fornication or watching pornography or struggling struggling with heterosexual lust. And our posture should not be Thank you, God, that I'm not like those people, but have mercy on me, a sinner. That's where God's grace is found. One thing we'll be talking about in this series is how our sexuality is deeply intertwined with who we are as male and female created in the image of God. And for that reason, it is a very powerful part of our human experience. And for that reason, it's a source of some of the deepest shame and wounding and pain that we ever experience in life. All of us here are broken in our sexuality. And so maybe we should have some compassion on other people whose, whose sexual sin and brokenness may be different from ours, right? Because we all need God's grace. Behind every issue, every debate, every headline, there are human beings made in the image of God, and many of them are hurting human beings. In the words of Preston Sprinkle, gay people are not problems to be solved, but people to be loved. And we can't do that without humility. Humility is also... The opening through which God can change us and teach us, because I guarantee you we all have beliefs and attitudes that need to be changed surrounding these topics. Um, No matter where you're coming from, as we talk about same-sex relationships and marriage and singleness and the experience of um, gay Christians and gender identity, you'll have some beliefs challenged I've had a lot of my beliefs challenged about this over the last decade. Now, to be clear, I believe that the historic Christian consensus on human sexuality is true and life-giving. That what Christians have agreed about for 2,000 years in every culture about what the Bible says about sex and marriage, I don't think that needs to change. But there are so many other things that are unbiblical and unchristlike in us that maybe do need to change. Okay, so we need humility. Number 2, clarity. Everything okay? Did you get off in the ambulance fine? Okay, was he responding more? Okay, good. Good. Okay. Okay. Well, thank God, and may God continue to be with Barry and help him. Thank you, Chip, and thanks, Mike, and Colin. Um, Okay, so we need humility. We need clarity. Um, Currently, our world is quite confused about sexuality, and the church is too. Uh, We need clarity. So please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm not I'm not really spending a ton of time in any one scripture today, but I'll be lingering a bit on 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It starts on page 926 in the Brown Pew Bibles. Now, in the church in Corinth, um, there was a lot of confusion about sexuality, because the Roman world, and Corinth specifically, was very sexually promiscuous, very, um, uh, sex was an appetite, just another appetite to be filled. And so prostitution, and um, adultery, and um, homosexual practice, and all kinds of things were very common, and very, just non-issues in the Roman world. And not surprisingly, that seeped into the church. The church was like the sponge in the culture and soaked in the values of the culture. So Paul was writing to these Christians to remind them of the truth and to actually teach them the truth about these things because a lot of them were brand new Christians. So chapter 6, starting in verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Pause there. So a few things are clear here. First homosexuality or sexual sin in general is not the only sin. (laughs) Newsflash. He talks about idolaters, swindlers, people who are greedy. It's a level playing field. Um, However, it's notable that one-third of the sins Paul lists here are sexual in nature, perhaps because it was so common in Corinth. Uh, Sexual immorality translates the Greek word porneia, You can know where the word pornography came from, porneia. But that's a blanket term for any kind of sexual immorality that's outside the Bible's ideal of one man, one woman, one flesh, one life, as a guy named Sean McDowell puts it. Um, Then he specifically adds adultery and homosexual practice. Now, apparently some Christians were teaching things like it doesn't really matter what we do with our bodies because it's all going to burn anyway, or because God's grace is so great, Uh, we have the the right to do anything. But Paul is saying, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Our culture has a lot in common with ancient Corinth. (laughs) Um, And unless we are saturated with the gospel, we'll be like the dry sponge in the water. Let me read some statistics that were quoted in a recent book called Rethinking Sexuality by Dr. Julie Slatterly. And this might be uncomfortable to hear. Reading these statistics is not to cast judgment on anybody here, okay, because we're all in the same boat. Uh, So for one, a Gallup poll found that more than 60% of Christians on a Christian dating site said they would have sex before marriage. And 56% said, said it was appropriate to move in with someone. 32% of Christian men ages 18 through 32 admit to having an addiction to pornography. And then the Pew Research Center found that 54% of Christians believe that homosexuality should be accepted rather than discouraged. Now, we need to, be, we need to hear Paul's words Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. But, (laughs) that's not where it ends. Because Paul goes on to give a clear reminder of the power of the gospel. Look at verse 11. He lists all these things and he says in verse 11, And that is what some of you were. But, You have been washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. If we are clear about defining sin but not clear about the wonderful news of the gospel, we're confusing people also. We need to be crystal clear about the fact that in Jesus, there is forgiveness from every sin, including sexual sin. There is healing from trauma and wounds and shame. There is a way forward of life and of joy and goodness. We need to be clear about that. And then Paul makes a statement further in the chapter in verse 20. He says, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. If you are a believer in Jesus, your life has been bought by Jesus' blood. What does that tell you about how much you are worth to God? That, That God would let his own son die to purchase you? And I just think that's, as we talk about this stuff, we have to remember that so clearly. That Jesus is more Jesus' grace is stronger and deeper and wider than our sin. And in the gospel, we have redemption, cleansing, washing, sanctification. We can be made new. And he's not talking to Christians who, you know, are no longer sinning. They're still struggling with these sins. But he's saying, that's not who you are anymore. Remember that you were bought with a price. Okay, so we need humility and clarity. Finally, we need courage. Why courage? Some people might think, well, we need to courageously do battle with the secular world. Or we need to tell it like it is. But the kind of courage I'm talking about here is the courage to follow Jesus even when it's hard. That's the kind of courage we need. Because I can guarantee you this. If we believe and follow what the Bible says about human sexuality, all of it, uh, it'll be hard. It will lead to some really difficult conversations and decisions. Um, Some people will misunderstand us uh, and misrepresent us and even hate us. Um, we'll be accused of being judgmental and narrow by people on the left and we'll be accused of being too open and too loving by people on the right because Jesus does not fit into a political left or right spectrum category. His way is different. It's a third way. So we need courage. No matter what time um, of history or culture you live in, we live in, the church is always out of step with certain parts of the culture, and, and I can think of no greater way than that's true today than with sexuality. Um, if we're following Jesus, we will be out of step with some of our friends and family and coworkers, and that can hurt. I was talking with someone the other day, I'll call her Beth, who had a really tight group of Christian friends in college uh, but after graduation, as the years wore on, several of those friends chose their sexuality over Jesus. So two are married to other, are in, are in same-sex relationships and have distanced themselves from the church. Um, and this was really painful for Beth to watch um, because they knew that she loved Jesus and 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 didn't agree with what they were doing, but she tr- tried to reach out to them lovingly and just ask how they were doing, and, and gradually the messages stopped being responded to, and they sort of cut her out of their lives. That's painful. Here's another example. Um, a, the daughter of a friend of ours was recently in a theater p- production at BFA, and she and the cast were sitting around talking and, and everyone in the cast was talking about how they're lesbian or gay or bi or trans. And, and she didn't, uh, she was the only person who, who didn't go along with that. And she was mocked and ridiculed. She was a fish out of water. And she was a pastor's daughter, no less. So they knew what she believed. She wasn't unkind about it. She just didn't participate, but she was pushed out and ostracized from that group. One more example. A pastor friend of mine recently met with a man who had been attending the church and um, the man said, I am engaged to another man and I need to know whether or not we will be welcome here. And the pastor um, tried his best to explain or to ask questions and explain, of course they're welcome, um, but their church can't affirm same-sex relationships. And so the man got up and said, okay, well, I'm, I won't be coming back here. The third way is hard. The way of Jesus is hard. And if we're going to walk it, we need humility. We need the clarity and the courage that the gospel provides I want to close with a story um, of a woman named Rachel Gilson. And I think her story is so inspiring because she chooses the way of Jesus. Someone who has the most to lose still chooses Jesus, believing he is better. Rachel Gilson grew up in California in an unreligious family and knew very little about Jesus. She had a vague idea that Christians didn't like Jesus gay people because the Bible was against it. That was all she, that was her stereotype. But she did know as she got into high school that she was exclusively attracted to other girls. She writes, By the end of high school, I was convinced that everything central to my identity was opposed to everything central to Christianity. Uh, she was also a very, a very smart person going on to Yale College. He says, I was devoted to scholarship, to ideas, to truth. Christianity was about crutches, blindness, and autopilot. I was determined to marry my girlfriend. It was the early 2000s and legal marriage was about to emerge and embrace my sexuality fully. Christianity was a cruel, nonsensical no to, this, to love in this form. So Rachel went off to Yale University, and against all odds, Jesus met her there. (laughs) And she wanted to believe in him, but her big question was, what about my sexuality? What about this deep part of my life that feels so real to me? Turns out the only two Christians she knew at Yale were two women in a relationship with each other, one of them studying to be a pastor, so go figure. But she went to them for some advice, and they they were so happy to talk to her, and they gave her this big packet explaining how the Bible is actually um, affirming of same-sex relationships, if you read it in the right way. So she excitedly read that. It made sense to her, and then she went back to her room and opened the Bible that they had given her and looked up the passages, and in her words, she said, I felt duped because what she read in Scripture didn't square with the arguments these women gave her. So she she thought, back to square one. What can I do with this part of myself? Will God still accept me? Well, she wound up getting connected with a Christian fellowship group on campus. They gave her a Bible. She tagged along with them. And she began to realize that Jesus was asking her to trust him even though she didn't understand everything. And so so she finally surrendered her life to Jesus, come what may. To make a long story short, um, uh, she describes the, the painful but ultimately liberating decision to submit her sexuality to Jesus. She writes, "...in the end it came down to trust." Jesus, uh, I knew Jesus was worthy of trust because he had made a greater sacrifice. He had left the bliss, the comfort, the joy of loving and being perfectly loved to live a sorrowful life on earth. He took the pain and shame of a criminal's death and suffered the father's rejection also I could be welcomed. What could, who could be more deserving of trust? So here is someone who had the most to lose by choosing the way of Jesus. She knew that saying yes to him would mean saying no to certain things in herself. And yet she had the courage to do that because she had seen that Jesus was worth it. He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure hidden in the field that the man sells everything to get. And as she has done so and continued to follow Jesus, he has not disappointed her. And she realized that everything she has found in him, uh, that, that he is the true answer to the longings in her heart. Just as Jesus promised, she's found life and joy. And what felt like dying is actually living. And I, I just think that's a hero of the faith right there. And these are the kind of people we need to be listening to and following, and, and following in this third way. So may we have the same kind of courage and may we have humility and clarity to choose the way of Jesus.